1: Welcome back to Open the Voice Gate, Rewind and Rewatch Episode 11, covering The Way of the Ronin from 2010. It happened on September 26, 2010 from the Miramar Theater in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I am one of your hosts, Iron Mike Spears, your old pal. How's it going, everyone? And we're members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You could find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed or on the open the VoiceGate RSS feed on every platform and application possible. Uh you can follow us on Twitter at OpenVoiceGate. With that all being said, I am joined as always by my good friend Case low and co-host. And also we have a special guest this week, Case. We do indeed. Uh
2: nothing is uh there there's no more fitting way to send off brian danielson on his dragon gate usa journey there is no better way to celebrate a dragon usa show of such stature without having a special guest aboard to
1: talk about this show that's right and we have someone who was at the miramar theater on september 26 2010 one of 200 people from a sold-out miramar theater it is kelly harris kelly how's it going
3: it's going great uh if you're watching the show you can find me wearing a tyler black shirt
1: you know like that's the that was the thing like i was trying to like find people in the crowd with this show with the, like the lights because how compressed it was and i didn't know necessarily what t-shirt you were wearing so i was like <laughs> going which t-shirt do i think kelly could be wearing right now <laughs> and which one it was there was someone in a sinestro t-shirt which knowing you i was like that could be kelly but i don't think so <laughs> so all right so tyler black t-shirt next yeah, time i was well,
3: sitting next to me was my dad in the uh baby blue sweet and sour ink shirt
1: well i mean that's a high. very solid combination Yes, yeah, solid yeah. Combination here. So, this week we are going to be talking about Wave the Ronin. It was their first show in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. It came after the show that happened the night before in Chicago, the Untouchable 2010 show. And not much of news we really wanted to get into, Case, but there were two big things that we wanted to have Kelly on to talk about since he was there live.
2: Yeah, not only is this the final Dragonite USA appearance for Brian Danielson, as I mentioned earlier, but this show almost uh, either did not happen or happen in a drastically altered state, we'll say, as the ring, uh, the all-important wrestling ring, uh, did not show up to the venue in time. Now, if you're a Drangate historian, you might know the August 9th, 2008 Summer Adventure Tag League show in Cork and Hall, in which Drangate had shipped over, an American made ring to Japan. And then the dark match of that show, the ring broke. And instead of canceling a sold out cork and hall, Drangate simply taped the mats to the floor and proceeded to have a full wrestling event with no ring. They were doing this before uh, Indies Across America ruined the idea. Drangate made it very, very cool. Um, This situation almost happened in Milwaukee, but luckily at the last minute, a ring was delivered to the venue. Thus, we were able to have professional
1: wrestling as we know it. And Kelly, being at the show, they made a big note on the show that the show started late how was it like everyone just waiting around while this was happening? Like, I mean, I assume no one was being led into the Miramar Theater before the ring showed up.
3: Yeah, no, we were all just in line outside. And so at, at first, there's uh, five guys down the road. So we went there and we sat at the table next to Bryce. Uh, and it could you could kind of tell the way he was talking to people, like looking back now, it's like, seemed kind of tense. So he may have known what was going on and we're kind of worrying about it but so after we ate we went down to the venue when the doors should have been op- opening like right around then because we had the that we were in the golden circle oh so, so you got to see that
1: you got to see the bonus card or what was going to be the bonus yeah. card
3: yeah so we so we had you know our seats already picked out so we we're like ah, oh, we don't need to be there right when the doors open but so we walk in we walk by and there's still this huge line and i noticed like oh is that gabe and Gabe's walking up and down the line. And once he gets to us, he tells us, you know, the ring isn't here, we're we're still waiting. So, you know, we can't let anyone in right now, but it'll be here soon. And, you know, he's, he's very flustered as Gabe's going to be.
2: I, I was gonna say, did Gabe say it as calmly as that? Or was he saying, uh, th- there's no there's no ring right now. There will be a ring. Please, if you're a Golden Circle Memo, relax. There will be a ring. It makes sense that that was
3: more what Gabe was doing rather than calmly yeah. explaining the situation. But I made him feel a little better, because back then he and I were MySpace friends. Okay. So I knew it was his birthday, so I wished him a happy birthday. Aw, very nice. So, but that also meant then that he would, as he was going up and down the line, he'd stop and talk to me and my parents longer than anyone else, so we got a little bit more out of him at the time. <laughs> so, I don't know, I've never heard like what the official story of what happened with the ring is. But this is what he told us. Apparently the ring driver was jumped the night before and was in the hospital and no one knew until midday.
1: Oh, wow. That is, I I remember hearing that a rumor of like the, uh, it getting like carjacked and jumped. There was the other rumor that it was supposed to be a sweet and sour Larry Sweeney's ring, which at that time he was someone that was going through some issues and Gabe always kind of looked out for him a little bit and I, I was like like that but you, you know they've never really truly said what happened to this first ring. yeah yeah I wonder I didn't I'd never heard that about Larry Sweeney
3: so maybe
1: yeah look it, it because this was during the time that just as a friend around to people like Larry Sweeney is someone who had who was mech depressant and was having very tough go he left uh chakara he left ring of honor and kind of was floating around and did like random appearances and it seemed like that gabe was like trying to like look out for him in a little bit of way and then someone i don't remember even like spread this rumor and of course i don't want to speak of larry sweeney now but it that was like one thing that went along was like oh yeah he was supposed to have the ring and it didn't show up i remember like hearing about this when it happened and every and already being a Dragon Gate fan, I was like, "So they're gonna go get mats, right?" And then I've like look <laughs> I, I went back and looked on the Observer and and Figure Four Weekly, and they were talking about how it was a disaster. The Dragon Gate guy said that they were going to like go to Lowe's and just get like, I guess like, plyboard and some <gasps> insulation foam and maybe a tarp and do it that way. Which, as Case mentioned, like that would have been very true to the form. It would have been the only thing that would have been more improv than when the ring broke. It turns out that the new ring that they found was one by uh Ratchke Brown, which was something that like was a- another blast in the past. Cause I know that like, isn't Brown. Like a i I know that you're Wisconsin bright uh, at base. What isn't like Brown, like someone that runs shows in the area or at least would yeah. at that time.
3: Yeah. He's a local guy. So yeah, they just pretty much found whoever was closest that had a ring that they could get to. So yeah, they had him bring it in. But like at one point when Gabe was talking to me and my parents, he was like, yeah, the Dragon Gate guys said they'd be okay doing the show without the ring. It's like <laughs> the American guys want us to wait.
2: <laughs> can you imagine kamikaze USA rolling up to a Lowe's and just grabbing plywood and whatever else they can to have a show just well a, a, a show with no ring? I mean that if shingo is coming to a home depot near me, he is getting my utmost service and respect. Whatever oh, yeah. he needs, it goes on my card. You don't <laughs> have to worry about it, Mr. Takagi.
3: Uh, and at one point, uh, Gabe comes out and tells us, hey, there's a ring on the way, and you know everyone cheers, so we're still waiting. A little while after that, Jimmy Jacobs comes sprinting out of the venue and just runs down the street. We don't see I, him again until the show starts, <laughs> so I don't know if someone got lost or whatever, but a couple minutes after that, the ring truck showed up, and then the Dragon Gate roster just pours out of the venue, and each they all start grabbing stuff and bringing it into the venue, and I don't know. Maybe twenty minutes later, we got in. Like it was extremely fast. I
2: thought you were going to say Jimmy Jacobs started singing to you guys, which I was going to feel <laughs> really bad for you. But I guess if he's
3: running away, that's good for something. <laughs> yeah. No. He he. At that point, I'm like, I don't know if I've ever seen anyone go that fast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it makes me wonder. Like, did he think that uh, Rashke like was lost, or he was like, all right, I'm going to direct this in.
3: Yeah, it had to have been like took a wrong turn or something cuz like in that area where it is there's a lot of one-way streets. Mm. So like I don't know if maybe he just ended up going the wrong way or something.
1: It's just and and like the thing that like really gets me is most of the Dragon Gate guys, they've they basically run as a co-op. So they all set up the running, they all do like this. So they were all pretty fine. I'm just imagining like and I'd imagine that some of the indie folks were used to it. I'm just imagining someone like Chuck Taylor, who is someone who's done, like, backyard shows, going, like, well, I thought this was my big break, but I guess I'm putting together a ring now. That's something. <laughs> and then, like, Brian Danielson, just, like, at this time, was already back in WWE with that, like, tier of, I don't want to say professionalism, because that's unfair to USA, but, like, that, that tier of production. And then it's yeah. like, oh yeah, Brian Danielson, this is your last show on the Indies. Guess what? You're helping us put together, <laughs> or, or as he said later on in the show, he did not put together the ring. He he claimed vet card there. It's just like such a wild situation, and yeah. you know, for DGUSA, it just like seems like that these things just start happening more and more. And this is like one of the ones like, well, well, the ring didn't show up, so they had to get a a, a big ring, a new ring, and it just was one of those things. In retrospect, makes me think how, like how snake bit at least for a while. This promotion was.
3: And this also kind of made me realize that like I don't think I fully I still don't think I fully understand how rings are carted around because it's like they still had the ring mat and the turnbuckle pads, which is something I would normally assume would just get transported along with the ring itself.
1: Yeah, I i think the thing is I remember on my space with Gabe back when we back in nicer times between. People and people i've done the shows with and <laughs> gabe sapolsky uh i remember him like talking about like how proud he was of the ring apron he got for dragon gate usa and it was a cool ring i guess yeah and, and knowing how things would go for gabe and wm promotions in the future i guess it seems like that you 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 wouldn't want to have like a ring truck unless it's somewhere within like your availability so you would get someone to come bring in the ring like i i suspected that for like the whenever they mentioned a promotional partner that Pretty much tells me, oh, oh, they're using their ring and I guess whatever, like steps and whatever for them. So I guess whoever and there was not one announced from Milwaukee, so I guess wherever he got the ring from, there was all those issues and Rashki Brown came in. I mean, I was kinda surprised with all of that Rashki Brown didn't find his way on this card because of he he brought over the ring. Usually that means you get on the show one way or the yeah. other.
2: Normally that's how you get booked. That's I mean, <laughs> if you're a subpar wrestler, buy a ring, it will get you bookings. I <laughs> I, I know two things. Well, I know one thing for sure, which is that I know Gabe loved the DG USA ring skirt and the canvas and the way it looked. I know wrestlers hated it because the red on the canvas would stain their gear. So oh. I think I think it's Brian Kendrick, maybe, who, uh, maybe it's WrestleMania weekend. You can see on the second night, he clearly has like pink stains on his gear. It's some wrestler on the back of End of a double shot, you can clearly see that like the ring has left their mark on the attire, and that's something that Johnny Gargano talked about when he did his kayfabe commentaries interview with Gabe. Was that you know all it looked so good because Gabe makes mention of it when they're watching the uh, fray match from the first DGUSA show. Is Gabe's like ah, I love that canvas, and Johnny's like yeah, but it stained all of our gear, so how good was it? And then you know Kelly makes a good point about the fact that there was a ring skirt and. Maybe turnbuckles, maybe not, which is something that, yeah, like I hadn't even considered that because the overall setup, the the way that everything was presented looked very good. You wouldn't have known there was an issue getting the ring there because it was it was set up to look so nice. I feel like there was a story about during the the evolve of like three or four years ago of Gabe carrying trash bags of evolved turnbuckles and whipping those into his car and then going with Chris Dickinson to the shows. I feel like that was a story that was out there. So maybe Gabe has the canvas and the turnbuckles with him at all times, which quite honestly, not a bad idea because who's the one person that's guaranteed to be at the shows? It's Gabe Sapolsky. So perhaps he was taking those with him and then the
1: ring was a separate entity all to itself. Yeah, it makes sense. Do you think we could buy the turnbuckles from Gabe? Like a turnbuckle pad or two? Because he has to still have them, unless they're like in a storage unit he hasn't paid for.
2: I know Sal has the Freedom Gate title, so there has to be turnbuckle pads laying around. And there's no way Gabe wants those, so he should send them to us. Yeah, Because
1: I would proudly display one. (laughs) I mean, I will be 20% more nice to Gabe Sapolsky. If I can somehow buy a DGUSA turnbuckle pad for a reasonable price, if it's an unreasonable price, then I'm gonna be continuing me being an asshole. But if it's if we're able to like do some business here, I mean, they're just sitting around, Gabe. Like, do you really think DGUSA is gonna pop up again? Come on, like the belt. I know the belt that sell. There's no way, and I'm not a belt guy. But a turnbuckle pad. I think that would look pretty nice and like with my collection of masks and and like DG action figures and all the things I have. I'd be really down on getting a DG USA turnbuckle pad.
2: Gabe should just uh, offer the same rate that he pays most of his wrestlers. I think that would be a fair
1: deal.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I think the price just went up.
1: Yeah, so much for that good deal I was hoping for.
2: <laughs> my bad. It's, it, we're all going through stuff now, Mike. That's my bad. I blew that operation <laughs> for you.
1: It's all good. It's all good. So this was like the big thing that was happening. It was covered in the newspapers and the dirt sheets. But the bigger thing that happened was that this was the final show for Brian Danielson for what what we called on the his first episode of things, his super senior year on the Indies. <laughs> he would finish this up with a... Fight john moxley and how was kind of the scene around the venue that day kelly knowing that like this was like an era finality was here because he was already back in wwe and we've i i think we forgot to mention that on the last show he at this time was wwe u.s champion like was there like an interesting kind of like just i don't even want to say like an air about it but like was there like a sense going in that everyone knew that this was like the final goodbye at this kind of stage
3: yeah it definitely it felt important for sure. Like it was because at first you see him, he, show, he showed up on what was it? Survivor Series or something like that. It was some kind of elimination match he was involved in. And in that was SummerSlam. SummerSlam. That's it. Yeah. He popped up in there. And once that happened, I was kind of like, well, guess he's not going to be at that Dragon Gate show anymore. Oh, well. And then he, they Gabe puts out the newswire or whatever. And it's like, Hey, they're letting him fill, fulfill his dates. He'll be there. It's like, Oh, fucking cool and then he won the title i was like what all right cool i get to see the u.s champion in this little venue wrestling with dragon gate guys this is great but yeah no it was like it felt important like this was definitely a moment where i was like oh this is probably the last chance we'll ever have to see a guy just uh to see brian in this environment
1: yeah and at least like through the time like it just felt like oh wow this is something that was happening and something that felt special and i feel like that especially if like these three matches he had in this like the one versus shingo the one versus yamato and then finally i really even wouldn't call it passing baton but having this kind of match with john moxley and having like in the venue like i know that the miramar theater was smaller than other videos but it was one of the cooler venues i feel like that they've run so far like i feel like that there was like a like, an extra, like, sprinkle on top of how sp- how special of a Sunday this was. Yeah, it's
3: a... The Miramar is a great venue, and I've, I've seen three wrestling shows there, but, like, I don't think anyone ever runs it anymore. The last show I saw was Chikara in 2012, I believe. I don't know if it's just, like, a pain to get rings in there, or whatever, but, like, it's such a great wrestling venue.
1: It, it's something that, like, I noticed that whatever ring that was brought to it, it was a smaller ring than I feel like that you we've seen like in Chicago and in Philadelphia. So I could totally buy that. Like people when don't want to bother with like a smaller ring. And then I know it's the case of some places could change ownership and the owners could say, we don't want wrestling here because I mean, wrestling can fuck up the floors. I mean like with all the yeah. stuff going on there, but I thought this looked really cool. And I thought like the way it was laid out, it was laid out in a way that, you know, with how Evolve went and how like attendance was for a long time of Evolve, it felt like in a perfect Evolve venue and it felt like for like this kind of show, like something like really special and very intimate that we haven't seen too much with DGUSA so far.
3: Yeah, intimate is the perfect way to put it. It was just a really nice, it was in, you know, it looks cool like you get the stage up there, so there's some fans up there and then you have pretty much, it was pretty much packed and it It had really good acoustics, so everyone, the crowd sounded great. And I mean, it helped that we were hot from literally being hot from standing outside and everyone was fired up for a good show. But yeah, no, it's an awesome venue for wrestling. And I really wish someone else would run there.
1: Yeah. And it's just one of those things like with that, with Danielson, with getting a true Dragon Gate six man as the main event, it kind of put together what I felt like was a pretty special show. A case where there are any other big notes that I think I've left off before getting into the show itself.
2: We covered 99% of the timeline on the Untouchable 2010 episode just because we knew we would have a guest on for this week. The thing that should be noted is that on September 9th in the DGUSA DG Newswire, it was announced that Jigsaw versus Granakuma would be on this Milwaukee show as the final chapter of the Chikara Sekigun versus Kamikaze USA feud. That match had to be pulled due to Jigsaw's injury. That happened a week or two before the show, so it was announced ahead of time that it would be Ricochet versus Granakuma. The other note is that it was originally planned for Mike Quackenbush to wrestle Dragon Kid, In a singles match, but uh, over the course of the broadcast, Lenny Leonard noted that Quackenbush was dealing with an unspecified injury, and thus he ended up entering in the six-way freestyle match, and Eric Cannon got the biggest opportunity of his young DJ USA career as he ended up wrestling Dragon Kid in a singles match, and that is all of the timeline notes I have.
1: Yeah, and to be honest, like, the whole situation with Quack, I think, like, that three-way match he had with BB Hulk and Tozawa at Untouchable 2010, it did look like there was a moment at the very beginning of the match where he, like, tweaked something or he went down hard, so I totally understand like, the idea of switching that around, and you know, for someone like Eric Cannon, I mean, this was, like, the start of something more for him in DGUSA, so I thought that was a pretty thing. You know, I as tough as I am on Quack and Bush, and like this thing has not been very uh, complimentary to my memory of my Quack and Bush, him versus Dragon Kid would have been an interesting match.
3: Yeah, that w- that would have been really cool. Looking back, so...
2: it would have been interesting to see Quack and Bush in that environment because he didn't have a—I don't know if he had any singles matches against Dragon Gate guys. Now that I think about it, because I think all of his work was either the Chikara match on the first show or it was tag team matches with Jigsaw. And this is something we'll touch on a little bit on the on the next double shot that we talk about the Northeast shows to conclude 2010, but I think we'll talk about it more as we enter 2011, that this six-way freestyle is Mike Quackenbush's final match in Drangate USA. He does not return after this. So we are left with a lot of
1: questions and few answers as to what a prolonged Quackenbush and DG USA run would have looked like you see i completely forgot that this was his last appearance so thanks for bringing that up that's something i'm gonna i'm gonna need to seek out and see if i can find out some things about that but i think with that it's worth getting into the show as we've mentioned this is from the miramar theater in milwaukee wisconsin there was only one golden circle match that that you got in early for kelly and i'm sorry there was only one match and, and not a whole lot more was... And
3: no, and it wasn't special because they let everyone in.
1: Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, they were just like, you guys have been waiting long enough, everyone come in. That's, <laughs> I mean, you're not getting Thundersticks there. You, no. You would get the voucher for the uh, the merch booth, but what else is it supposed to be if you're not going to be there to see the bonus card?
3: Yeah. Uh, what
1: Wait, you... there there was a voucher? We didn't get a voucher. <laughs> I mean, when I went to the Mania shows in Miami, I got a, uh, I got a voucher for... Uh, it was like $10 off at the uh, booth. So I went and yeah, I, cool. I got a bunch of buttons. So nice. Yeah. yeah. You know,
3: we got the fancy tickets, which I'll get to again later at the end of the show. But yeah, so we, they, we got the, uh, the golden circle match, which was just a dark match.
2: No, <laughs> no, 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 sir. It was a bonus card offering. I assure <laughs> you it was True. just, Sorry. it was just with four guys that Gabe consistently either used on under cards or in dark
3: matches exclusively. Yeah we did you guys see this?
1: I have, I did not. I did not know. Okay. So I've seen this match before, though. <laughs> yes,
3: yeah, many I watched times.
1: the the DVD
3: and like, it's fine. Like it, it's whatever for a dark match. But like, I'm thinking of a dark match ending with a shooting star 450. I'm wrapping my head around kind that. Kind of insane. <laughs>
2: I still and the the match was Aeroform defeating Zero Gravity. So the team of Aeroform of Flip Kendrick and Lewis Linden uh, against Zero Gravity of Brett uh, Gakia and C J Esparza. Uh, a n- usual and often seen Midwest tag team match. I still have a ton of Lewis Linden stock and I only recently sold my CJ Esparza stock. I don't think that is ever going to happen, but (laughs) these guys were all over the early Evolve shows. These guys were all over AAW before AAW sort of transitioned its business model. Lewis Linden is the last guy that to me has been worth watching at AIW, even though it's been a few years since I think even that has happened. Uh, But it's a five minute match between two teams that wrestled each other a lot.
1: Yeah. And, I feel like that this match probably has happened on uh, WWN shows all throughout. Like, this was kind of almost a traveling match in a lot of ways. But, you know, g- given how things had to switch around with this show, especially in the lead up to, not super surprised, but all things considered, you know, th- th- those are four kind of Midwest stalwarts. I know that I-, I saw a bunch of Kendrick and Lyndon and Chakara, because like, the, the, they had like the, the, the uh, Cleveland car for a while was them and Gargano. So, like, they worked, like, a king of trailers and like this. And I think I've seen Zero Gravity on a... What was it? I think it was on a couple of Ian shows. So, I don't... Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. that sounds right. I, I don't feel like that missing this five-minute version of that would have been too much. So, that was the one bonus card match. We then opened the show with Shima getting in the ring. He apologized for the delay in a prop and promises a good show mentions that ricochet joined uh, warriors international to a th- to a pretty solid reaction and mention chuck taylor might join as well in the crowd booed which you know shima was all over these cards and y- you know this was having him out there giving like the hey we know this all sucked and like and then doing the uh Ooh, to all four sides was you know for t- for shima that's him trying to do a make good and you know i feel like <laughs> that all things considered in the circumstances good for shima
3: i wonder if they shifted things around to make this the opening of the show so shima could go out and do this
1: i would have to expect so because i don't think that like really like looking at the other singles matches you weren't going to have gargano and younger because gargano younger probably would have been the opener i would imagine yeah so it makes sense so that led to shima versus chuck taylor shima defeated chuck taylor in 11 minutes and eight seconds and what i thought was a pretty fun opener what was your thoughts
3: yeah, I would agree. I thought it was a really fun opener. You had some a little bit of comedy in there, which worked They They were do, they were doing fun stuff like with the uh, Shima biting Chuck Taylor's foot. And uh, yeah, it was just a, a lot of fun and kind of I haven't watched old Chuck Taylor in quite a while. And it's kind of like you can tell a little bit he's almost there, but he's improved so much over this, I guess, decade now
1: yeah and, and at least like for me like shima very much is someone that's going to like take a show off and especially like back to back after having a huge match that was on the pay-per-view main event the night before you know knowing that chuck taylor is someone even before really like i thought like like i was following him i like actually the time and going back and watch it like he is someone that like you can tell that this is 10 years previous but i mean going with like these two guys and going with like kind of a little bit of a jokey opener that then kicked into like a final gear where things got super serious made a lot of sense. And it was like, I felt like a pretty smart way of opening up the show.
2: I really enjoyed this once they kicked it into gear and began having a somewhat serious contest, mainly because these are two guys who I adore. And, and Shima has proven that he can work on the biggest platforms possible and that he can succeed. I truly believe Chuck Taylor has that talent as well. The way he's presented might lessen the impact of a big-time Chucky T run, but I believe, you know, pound for pound, he has that talent. But watching these guys work in a small, intimate setting like this, they are both masters of working to 200 to 400 people. And that sounds like an insult, but it is not. They are just very good at reacting to the crowd and off of the crowd and interacting with the crowd i thought both of these guys were very much in their element here and also to me this was just an example of what could be on AEW dynamite not only because both guys are assigned but this was just a work rate opener to me that if i'm booking a company i want a match like this starting every one of my shows thoroughly enjoyed this opener
1: yeah, and I guess I'd say, like, one thing that I thought was pretty remarkable for someone like Shima is he has a tendency of, of being willing to eat someone up, and it did not really feel that way, especially considering the things that Chuck Taylor said in the past about how he didn't think that Shima really cared for him. He he was able to, like, I mean, get a, get a kick out of a swine, and a kick out that I feel like they did a great job getting the crowd to buy into, because... At that time, Schwein was pretty much his primary finisher. The Meteora really started to take over at this point, but it had enough buy-in there, and I felt like that, that kind of came together that this really could be like a dynamite opener, and, a, and it would be something that, if this was an opener every week of the year, uh, of course, I wouldn't complain, but I think it would be one of those things that I think the crowd would really get into as well. Yeah, it was definitely, like, it felt like a 50-50 match. Yeah, and that's the thing that I find remarkable, because... There are times and there's been matches we re- where we've reviewed so far where it has not been 50-50. It's been the Shima show, and this was not the case there. And I think that was the—I the, would not want to have a Shima show match open up considering all the things that happened. Like, the, this was already an hour and a half late, and then you have Shima basically eating someone up. Nah, that, this was the right move here. And I don't know if it's anything that, like, Gabe pulled Shima inside and said, hey, I, I know. I know, you You don't need to stress <laughs> out about this, let, but, but let, let's have something good out there. Or if she was like, all right, I want to have a fun match. And it turned out, and you know, for someone like Chuck Taylor, who was like, not really featured up until this point. This was like his big uh, first step here before, like how things would end out the year. And I felt like that this was a big first step for him. I feel like that in that situation, I think Chuck Taylor knocked it out of the park. I was watching very closely for any sort of signs of Shima disrespecting
2: Chuck Taylor, or even just being apathetic towards him because as Chuck has talked about, like those two in particular ended up not having a great relationship as their relationship progressed. But like Mike mentioned, Chuck kicked out of the swine, which got a great reaction. Gargano did a uh, the same thing at the end of the dragon pay-per-view. The only time of this match where I felt like Shima asserted himself, not even in a negative way, but you just clearly felt Shima's presence, was he does uh, that hang time double stomp in the corner where he kind of handstands on the top turnbuckle and then just drops his feet down onto the abdomen of Chuck Taylor. And it looked like he stuck the landing on that in a way that looked super unpleasant. And maybe that was Sheba's way of, you know, just reminding Chuck Taylor that he is the top dog and that, you know, if you're going to succeed in this company, you need to bring it against me. But Chuck held his own here. I gave the opener three and a half stars. I
1: loved it. I went three and a quarter, but I think that's a pretty fair rating. Uh, Kelly, I don't know. Did did you watch these shows and had star ratings in your mind when you were watching it?
3: Yeah, uh, I went three and a quarter on this one.
1: All right, so we we're pretty much on the same page there. Um, and, and something also that happened right after this match that I felt like was very much like Gabe knowing what happened and knowing, like, I can't just make this like a usual long Gabe show is he did the thing where I've noticed where if you can tell that Gabe's on some time crunch or if he has this idea, he likes going from match to match to match and have like segments roll into it. And we had that with Gargano coming out there, uh, giving. Pops to chuck but really just kind of shoving him down because he wanted to talk to shima continuing their storyline and he tried to convince shima that he was growing shima does not take him seriously and then that leads drake younger to attack him following up on stuff from the first few shows so that went straight into the next match of johnny gargano and drake younger uh kelly what was your opinion of like johnny gargano when like in 2010 we saw him live and like as a young johnny gargano finally kind of getting his breakout performances
3: that he was a guy where i Cause like my parents weren't as in tune to the indie scene as I was. And I kind of told him like, Hey, this is a guy you're going to want to keep an eye on. Like he definitely felt like he was going to be something special. And like, he, I really enjoyed the promo with Shima. Like I still laughed, laughed out loud when he kept trying to convince Shima, like, no, 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 look at me. Not, not the fans, not the camera, me, (laughs) but yeah, no, he definitely came off. Like he's a future star for sure.
1: Yeah. And it's something that it's kind of remarkable, like looking at this, at least in, my opinion, I like how much chemistry considering you have a guy who I don't think Argano knows any Japanese and for Shima, it might have been his at that time, his third or fourth language was English. So the fact that they had like pretty good chemistry here, I thought was pretty remarkable for the stage of at least their relationship in DGUSA.
2: I would yeah. co-sign that.
1: Okay. And then that led to that match. It was Johnny Gargano defeating Drake Younger in 959. With the Hertz donut, and there was an interesting note in the Observer from this thing where they're talking about chair shots, and there wasn't one here, but I know that that was kind of a big kind of topic of the time about like the chair shots, and kind of this match also really like brought up like how Drake was not someone who fit in very cleanly in DGUSA, and they said that there was heat on Drake for taking a chair shot to the head thing. It makes like the company does not care about talent, and then. Gabe said that the finish where they did do share shots to the back where you and said didn't get over his audience, so he noted you can't do them to the head, but takes the chair out as an effective tool. So it does seem at this time that they at least recognize that Drake Younger is kind of a sore thumb here, and I feel like that that was kind of the tendency for this match as well. I don't know if that was just me, my opinion on that, but did y'all feel that way with Drake in this?
3: Yeah, he didn't fit in on this show. <laughs> like, I don't really have any problem with Drake, but it was just like, you're you're a deathmatch guy. What do you, what do you do? You're a CZW guy. What are you doing on dragon gates?
2: It's that. And I'm someone that I I have talked about this since Drake started appearing on the show. Like I really like Drake's PWG work that would come a few years later. at least I did at the time. I don't know how it holds up now. Not only is Drake a deathmatch guy who doesn't really have a style that I think at least at this point in his career meshed well with a Gargano or a Chuck Taylor or a rich swan or the guys that he was sort of battling against. There's also just an aesthetic level of Dragon Gate that needs to be met, and that comes in both fitness and just your overall persona. There is kind of a look that needs to be uh, maintained, and Drake Younger on these shows, quite honestly, looks like shit. Like, he's not in shape at this point. Drake would go on to get super ripped, and had 2012 or 2013 Drake shown up, maybe he would have had a shot. But here, Drake looks big. He looks slow. He doesn't fit the vibe or the tone of the promotion, and I never really enjoyed any of the matches he was in. So it's a, it's an unfortunate period of Drake Younger's career that I was just not into at all.
1: Yeah. And Did you guys? Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Did
2: right you
3: guys ahead. notice the bit where I'm pretty sure Johnny Gargano forgot how to do a Boston crab? Where like he's got him up, but he's just holding Drake's feet instead of his like knees or whatever, and like they, Lenny Leonard even kind of notes on commentary, he's like he's got him in a modified Boston crab, and then he switches around, is like
1: oh, all right now he's got it locked in.
3: It was very strange. <laughs>
1: yeah it didn't feel like that these two guys had a lot of chemistry and like that seems to be like a very obvious sign of it the fact that he like it was really like grabbing him by like the flats of his feet and doing like yeah. a lock base on it it was really weird and it's the only time i've i can remember anyone trying to do that for a boss and it was insane but like it's just like this match at least for me i i felt like that you could see like that the chemistry wasn't there gargano like we're still at the point where like they they know they have something with him but there's still things to work out i don't like his finish i don't like the hurt stone it that much as a no. finish it does not no, look like it it does not look very strong and of course like soon he'd have like the gargano escape and he would be doing more things based off that it just was one of those things in this match that i mean it just like other than like i guess this gives johnny a feud right now and drake is Beloved loved by people in the back. So he's definitely someone that if you have in the locker room you know that he's a solid guy. He just did not fit in here and on a show that in retro like watching this show back there was like a lot of matches on the show. I was like, you know what? This match is a lot better than I expected. This match this match could have gone one way or another, but this match was something special. This was like a match that frankly underwhelmed in my opinion.
3: Yeah. And going back to what you said about his finisher, like even thinking back to just this show, it seems like they almost didn't respect because. In the second match on the card, you had Drake doing a one at one kick out of Johnny's finishing move.
1: It's just like, I and I know like, case you, you've watched this and you've talked about it. Like Johnny like talks about like how he's like changed and like took himself more seriously. Like it wasn't just like the gimmick thing. It was like, okay, changing who he was as a wrestler. And it's very clear that like this, I could see a lot of people going back to it and say, nah, you need to get a new finish kid. That looks like crap. Yeah.
2: I'm in favor of the Hertz Donut. I don't mind it as much as you guys, but I do think one of the best things Gargano did for his career is implementing a submission finish because just the way Gargano matches are worked, which for a long time I was drastically in favor of, and uh, over the past year or two I have now drastically turned against because it feels bloated. And unnecessary, but Gargano is someone who his style that he brings to various territories has always been kick out heavy and has been heavy on the dramatics, which again, I really liked up until a year or two ago. So, him having an established finish like the Hertz Donut that can pin guys but can also be kicked out of, I feel like was. Uh, greatly aided his career at times because he also had the gargano escape which he would implement later and that was a very respected and pretty deadly submission move
1: yeah that's fair and i mean like he does have moves that even when the gargano escape comes about that he will get other near falls off so i mean he loves the lawn dart i don't know if that move is banned i have not watched a johnny gargano match since i sat myself through what uh, i think was the cage match with him and uh Adam cole where i was like okay i'm done with this now like i went back and i was like all right this is it for me but he starts like because re- you're absolutely right like, he is someone that like if you're going to like say what his style is it's not necessarily even like a ring style it's an motion based style and kick bit out based style so it's nice that he's developed that but it's just one of those things that like i like keeping in mind like oh so this is where he was at and especially as we get in towards the tail end of 2010 and into 2011 we'll see how drastically things start changing around johnny Gargano.
2: Yeah, it, it, it ends up improving for the better, so I look forward to seeing what is in store for Gargano.
3: Case, would you say you got out of the Johnny Gargano stuff when Daddy came home?
2: <laughs> here's here's my brief history with Gargano. So I think people now either forget or they just don't know because why would they? Who cares? But towards like the end of Dragon Gate USA, when I started watching the company in 2013 and up through the Revival DIY tag matches that drastically changed the narrative on Gargano, it, it was unpopular in most circles, to enjoy Gargano. Now, most of those people are the same people that were anti-Prince Devin in New Japan, were anti-Pac, were behind the times on Kevin Steen and Sami Zayn. They just, they dragged their feet in the mud and they lashed themselves onto a Tim Thatcher type or a Drew Gulak type, or just these wrestlers that, you know, are fine at times, but ultimately bore me. Uh, NXT as a whole lost me two mania weekends ago um so what was that new york when did uh, the, there was a gargano chompa match at or maybe it was gargano cole whatever one happened at wrestlemania obviously not this year but the year before it was so bloated and over the top and just not what i enjoyed that that was when i threw up my hands on not only gargano but the entire promotion so a a legitimate answer to a funny question you asked me <laughs> oh no! <for laughs> and going saying... back to like what
3: said with everyone with people not liking gargano you know let me let me show you how wrong those people were back in like what 2014 2015 brandon stroud really hated johnny gargano so i think that tells you everything you need to know
1: yeah that changes my full thing on him exactly yeah (laughs) i i would say about daddy eats first is the thing that turned me off though (laughs) however the uh mommy eats first with candace Del Rey. On the other, on the other hand, I find incredibly amusing it, and I like the idea of. Have you seen those backstage promos that they've been doing? They're so weird. They're so weird. Case, okay, it's, it's worth watching. The, like their dinner thing that they have. It's just. Like, I saw screenshots of that. I did not. I did not check it out, but if it gets the Mike Spears seal of approval, I might as well watch it. Well, well, you know, if I'm going to recommend something, it's either because it's legitimately good or just amuses me. (laughs) And there's no in between. (laughs) No, 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 no. no, no, Because if I'm not going to recommend it, it means it doesn't amuse me. It's just bizarre, like camera effects. And then they have like the steel cup that he wore in that match on the middle of their dining room table.
2: Ugh, the, okay. This, ugh. god i hate
1: this already but i'll watch it i'll watch I it hope for Mike. They,
3: i hope they eventually use the cup as like a gravy boat or something <laughs> oh they have to
1: they absolutely have to like use it as like a gravy boat or like because like the dinners that they have is very much like a oh you're using those instagrammable meals that people get and it's just like imagine like whatever sauce they have like the very like small pesto they include this packet so they Just slowly pour over from the crotch area or the ball region of the cup. Like, there's a lot of ways you can go with this, Kelly. I I think this has some legs.
3: I I think it's absolutely what they need.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I went two and three quarters on this match just because, like, I did like the idea that Drake came in as a house of fire, but as soon as the match kind of settled down, I was like, oh, this isn't working. But, I mean, you know, for Johnny, I feel like this is, like, a thing that was, like, a step along the way. It's just Drake doesn't work in DGUSA, sadly
3: yeah I gave it the same rating. yeah, I went uh, two and a
1: half on it. okay, all right, yeah, no i, I it just does not work. It, it's just one of those things that I feel bad for Drake because of like how good he got that we didn't get that Drake like two years later there, but just not just not here at least right at this moment. That led us to a backstage promo where finally one of the biggest loose ends of the last two shows gets cleared up as Brian Jason and Hulker backstage or back outside. I wonder if they shot all of these, like they're like, let's just get these all done since we're running late. Let's get these, uh, let's get these promos done because Daniel's... Yeah, I
3: think they were just at, like behind the venue. Cause it just judging on like the light and stuff, it was definitely
1: while we were waiting out there. <laughs> I, I mean, knowing how Gabe has gotten on people in the past about what they're doing in the time before a show, this at least was productive. You know what I mean? <laughs> however, I would rather play basketball with Chris hero than cut weird, awkward promos. So, you know, <laughs> you take the good and the bad with that. So so Danielson and Hulk are outside. Danielson says that Moxie has zero respect and that they're going to not wrestle. They're going to fight. He then thanks Hulk and says, I'm sorry that i have not really been able to be around and help out as a member of world one. However, I have someone in mind and someone to give you a call that definitely will pick up the banner for me. So we finally have the loose end tied up about BB Hulk and Brian Danielson. And we have, who might be a new member of world one coming forward in the next set of shows.
2: Yes. Intrigue ensues.
1: <laughs> I ever got this promo happen, And so when like, when I going back and watching this show, cause I know I definitely watched the show cause I watched everything with Tozawa other than the Canadian shows. I was like, Oh, okay. That's nice that at least they recognize how weird of a situation it was that Brian Danielson joined world one on his first night. And then basically two shows later, he's like, I'm out of here. So, uh, I got someone for you. So I thought that was a pretty effective way of getting out of that pickle that they put themselves into. I would agree. And that led to the first ever, at least on pay-per-view six way freestyle as Rich Swan face off against Kyle O'Reilly, the aforementioned Mike Quackenbush, Silas Young, Brody Lee, and Jimmy Jacobs. Brody Lee got the win in 11 minutes and 22 seconds. We got a big boot on Rich Swan, And boy, this is a bunch of guys to be in this match like a yeah, different it's t- a stacked lineup. <laughs> it's like wild because like I'm, uh Silas is from Wisconsin, not uh, he is from was- Green Bay, right? Yeah, he's he's a uh, Milwaukee. So, local guy there and this is before he was with Ring of Honor. Uh Kyle O'Reilly making an appearance after Davey left, so that's something. And then you have Swan who's been featured mainly with Brody Lee. Brody Lee, Quackenbush, getting put into this because injury and Jimmy Jacobs, what a wild lineup here. So
2: I, I looked at a few different things in this match. One, I wanted to see how Silas young who had been working all of the bonus cards in Chicago. I wanted to see how he would fit in against some, some bigger talent. I mean, Jimmy Jacobs and Mike Quackenbush are stars on the Indies at this point, And Rich Swan and Kyle O'Reilly and, and Brody Lee are up and comers. And Silas at this point he actually worked ring of honor in 2009 as like an HD net jobber, but had, I think, you know, four or five months in the company where he was maybe not featured on shows, but was consistently working shows. And then that didn't work out. And this is still two or three years before the last real man gimmick comes into play. So it looks like the Silas young, we know, but the, the mannerisms aren't there. And he feels just like another indie guy and, his performance here wasn't bad, but it didn't necessarily blow me away. Whereas Brody Lee, who we've talked about since the Canada shows when he made his presence felt, there has not been a single second that Brody Lee has been on camera in this promotion thus far that I have not enjoyed. And I thought he was phenomenal in this match. I think Rich Swan, who was only 19 at the time, Swan looked good. Jimmy Jacobs does well in matches like this. He's oftentimes the glue. But Brody Lee with his killer trunks st- truck stop and his giant big boot, and he is the rightful victor of this match. To me, this was a, a an even bigger coming out party for Brody Lee because now every time he's on the show, he is stealing that segment and has been masterful in his performance.
3: That big boot to Swan to finish the match, it, that that was a murder right there. Like, he <laughs> killed that guy. <laughs> and it's, you know, seconds after this truck stop that he hits on
2: O'Reilly. And, you know, O'Reilly at this point is a young guy. He hadn't really filled out the way that he eventually would. And o- O'Reilly is, you know, a shorter guy but has muscle. And even at this point, you know— was a little stockier, and he gets up for this truck stop, and Brody Lee spins him around and throws him down with no problem whatsoever, and I thought that would end up being the finish, and then instead, you know, the match continues a little while longer than, as Kelly points out, Brody just wipes Swan off the face of the earth with this
1: big boot. I loved it. Yeah, like, the, the thing that about this match that I really took away from it was Kyle O'Reilly is not someone you think would be Fitting in necessarily when like you have the remainder of the people here and especially with like how USA is and how he was not his career I-, I thought it was very like beyond his years and experience the way he kind of took his style because that's something I find really remarkable he's improved on certain things but Kyle O'Reilly's kind of been the same kind of wrestlers entire career but he made it work in a really awesome way in this match. And I thought that that was something that made it kind of special when you have like him in this match. Silas Young, who, you know, he was so much bigger than everyone else than Brody Lee, but he was still willing to fly around. Quackenbush doing like weird submissions I've never seen before. And then Kyle Riley's just coming in there throwing bombs. I thought it all worked out really well in this match.
2: Yeah, I went three and a quarter on this. Uh, It was just, for the time it was given, and the placement on the card, I didn't feel like I could go any higher. But ultimately, the match felt really efficient. And spotlighting Swan to an extent, spotlighting Jacobs to an extent, but really putting the focus on Brody Lee and showing that he can be dominant against guys that are pushed commodities in this company.
1: That was exactly what I had, and I felt like that's a pretty way, like, I liked how like we had stuff like Jimmy Jacobs went for the end times and Brody Lee just powered himself into a really devastating spine buster and you know the I think it's been interesting how much like Rich Swan at this point they, they found ways to, for him like to take the finish but I felt like he, other than like Kyle O'Reilly like kind of molding himself into this match that this match has kind of become the Rich Swan match so far at least through the last few shows and I really enjoyed it but you're absolutely right about this huh? three and a quarter but for what this match was supposed to be, I thought it was a complete success. Kelly, yeah, yeah,
3: what did you get this? I yeah. went uh, three and a quarter as well. Swan definitely stood out, and especially with him just antagonizing Brody Lee almost the entire match, and which kind of led up perfectly to the finish. But uh, one thing I thought was kind of interesting is looking at both Kyle O'Reilly and Silas Young is how much of their offense is still the same. Like, that they still use kind of the same moveset, but, I mean, they've obviously refined it. But there's a lot of stuff where I was like, oh yeah, they still do that and they still do that. And it was funny just watching. It's like, oh yeah, still ten years ago, but you guys are still doing the same stuff. That's cool.
1: Oh yeah, a- I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. That's always been one of those things that when watching these shows, especially now that we're at, at a certain point, it was like eleven years b- before. And now we're already up to ten years, b- ten years ago, like seeing like especially like someone like O'Reilly and even Silas Young, who have gone on to bigger and better things, like they already had certain commands of themselves in the ring. And I feel like that's kind of remarkable saying like, okay, Gabe's known for like being someone who's able to figure out someone and give them the, uh, Avenue to perform. And even though like Silas young, I feel like has a, I know he did more evolve at this time than he did, uh, DGUSA, but it did feel like that Gabe had a certain level thing where a lot of people who don't make sense on these shows get worked out pretty quickly. But Silas young still had a place. It felt like for a while after this,
3: and Silas is one of the few, like, hometown guys that I'd, like, actually kind of take pride in, because, like, I saw him on so many shows just working, like, openers or dark matches, and, you know, now he's in a Ring of Honor. It's like, oh, dude, he made it. That's awesome.
1: And it's something that, like, it's interesting, like, when we, like, talking about DGUSA, because he does find these, like, local people, some of them that... For some inexplicable reason, become the most over thing in on the show. Hello, all you lovely Toronto wrestlers, <laughs> and then you have someone <laughs> like Silas Young, who's just like plugs himself in. I mean, from this, like Silas Young has a pretty much a run with DGUSA up until the next show in Milwaukee, so it works out, and it's kind of cool. I, I like the idea of like the local hometown guy that I would imagine at this point, Kelly, you've probably seen more Silas Young not on TV than anyone's seen him on TV, so. That's kind yeah, of cool they I've did.
3: Seeing him a ton of times. And, like, it's always kind of fun now in Ring of Honor we'll, where they'll just be like, oh, well, we kind of put him in the main event.
1: And he's always fine in the main event. Like, Silas Young here, like, I would have been interesting. Like, obviously, it seems like Ring of Honor, given how DGSA went, was the right move. But imagining, like, Silas Young somehow joining, like... Blood Warriors and going over to Japan for Dragon Gate would have been something real interesting because he's just such a distinct person and he has such a really distinct offense. That I could see had the Japanese crowd responding in an interesting way too. Case, what would you think about Silas Young and Dragon Gate?
2: Well, you know, I I, I like Silas Young. I've seen him in person a lot in both Ring of Honor and I've I've seen him on some AEW shows. At least I believe in person. If not, I've definitely seen him on tape. Silas it's almost like the Drake younger thing where Silas is a good wrestler on his own, but I don't think his style would have acclimated well to the company. Even his PG watch plunge moonsault, the headstand rope bounce moonsault gimmick. He does that is a good looking move, but at the same time, I hate that Silas young does it. It feels so forced in his arsenal <laughs> of like, Oh, this will like, this will pop the crowd, but especially, like during his last real man days, it would be like, why I don't understand why you're doing this. This goes against everything else you're doing. And, uh, you know, on a show with Ricochet, the PG watch plunge moonsault uh, feels quite lesser than a 630 uh, dive that Ricochet would do or the double moonsault that he had in his back pocket. So I don't see any reasonable roadmap to Silas young being a Drengate a uh, stable member at any point, point. and it two two up until now. As we're recording this, maybe something happens. Maybe the world changes, and Silas Young becomes a Dragon Gate roster member within uh, the time this is recorded, and then it comes out. But I don't <laughs> see that happening. <laughs> from what I was told,
3: that. from what I was told in the when he did the Ring of Honor tour for, of New Japan, like what was that two or three years ago? I guess the backstage guys were really interested to see if he could do the headstand moonsault on their uh turnbuckle pads where it's the full bar instead of the individual ones and I guess Gato was like came up to him after the match was like oh you you were able to do it
1: (laughs) (laughs) I find find stuff like that remarkable like what goes on in people's minds like oh we've seen you do this so long try it in our ring with these pads because yeah no I can see like how it completely would mess up your equilibrium or your balance on that so good I'm glad that the gato appreciated that like the uh, level of difficulty like if we're doing like gymnastics scoring that like that the pijuana plunge would have been with the full pad
2: for sure and then mike do you want to transition to john moxley promo from there because i thought this was a banger of a promo oh
1: so good yeah this was something that you know a big topic has been h- how is john moxley in 2020 eyes when we watch how he was in 2009 2010 and at this point, this might be one of my favorite promos in his company. He, in the company. He is backstage. He's out back before the show, before the ring. Sadly, he did not have a cigarette in his hand because I feel like that would have made this like even better if he was like <laughs> taking drags of a cigarette. i was saying this. He said he got himself a call from John. What John? John Cena. And he claims that Cena offered him ten grand to break Brian Danielson's arm, and he said he would do it for free. And then he contra, and he says the only lights that you will see after this aren't going to be the lights on the big stage. There, only lights you're going to see are the ones above me. And this was like a two minute promo, but I felt like this was perfect.
2: Him saying that he was offered ten grand to break somebody's arm, and then he'll do it for free instead, encapsulates the John Moxley character so well. This, I, you know, I don't know if it's my favorite promo he's done so far, but this was a dynamite promo. That it just you know, we talked about Kelly. We talked about when Moxley was introduced to the company. Like it was so clear that Gabe loved this guy and needed him to do something immediately. And we weren't sure how it was going to hold up, but every single Moxley promo, it's like, yeah, like this guy's the man. Of course. Like, of
3: course, Gabe loves this dude. He hits a home run every single time he talks. Yeah. He perfectly walks that line of, Oh, he's funny. Oh no, he's scary. Like it's, it's so good like with the the John Cena line and then just the believability of him like you, he is this guy he's this dirtbag and you like i there's few wrestlers of this era that are as believable as John Moxley
1: yeah it's just something like watching him and like even i don't even know how i'm look up how old he was at this time cuz he was really just a Guy that was only really starting to break out. 24. John Moxley at 24 had more command of his presence than a lot of people do. Like 15 years in their career, career. and even this, like six years in his career, he already knew exactly who he was and was remarkable. But that was, I think, the last. Oh no, there's there's a couple more backstage stuff. But that was leading into one of the matches that was that was changed up as Eric Cannon had his first big singles match in DG USA as he faced off against dragon kid and dragon kid defeated him in nine minutes and 43 seconds with a Bible and a match that if anyone was going to be kind of constrained with like how things are in the Miramar theater, I feel like that dragon kid would have been, but I feel like the two of them kind of came together. It wasn't like a perfect match, but I I thought this match was a lot of fun.
3: Yeah, this was definitely a fire pro match. (laughs) <laughs> like this, this was just, all right, random, uh, drink kid. All right. Random again, Eric Cannon. All right, go like this. You would never have thought that you'd ever see this match. And it was just, it was a fun clash of styles. And like Eric Cannon is kind of underappreciated. Like he's not amazing, but he's a fantastic utility player. And like, if I was making a roster, I'd probably pick him up as a guy who's like your solid mid-card hand
1: yeah i've i was like really high on canon and like he did a tour he did some tours of dragon gate because of w- W-S- wSX and then he was someone that like really for him i mean with how the indies were he was getting a lot of different places and it's just like him being here and then he's kind of i guess really just works his indie that he runs in minneapolis but he's such like a believable character he's a guy that for his size i'm i don't think he had this match but i've been real interested if there was like an eric cannon versus shingo takagi match because that would be a really interesting one and him and dragon kid i felt like that you know it wasn't completely flush but whenever i see eric cannon on these shows i get a little excited because i'm like oh yeah i remember how awesome you were in chikara and on like some iwa deep south or iwa mid south show so i'm always happy to see him on these shows
2: I'll keep my thoughts on these next two matches pretty brief because I don't have a ton to say. Cannon is always someone I've struggled with. I really respect him. I think there's talent there that is maybe not executed at times, if that makes sense. like I always expect Eric Cannon matches to be a little bit better than they are. I will say I enjoyed this because it was a guy for Dragon Kid to climb on and around much like the Shingo Takagi match from the night before. Inoffensive, fine. Uh, I, there's there's nothing else I have to say about this, although this is kind of the start of Canon as a pushed commodity in the company for the next two or three years, so this is his jumping-off point.
1: Yeah, and he's someone that's not like one of those top four people that we talk about, but he's someone that there is stuff that they have with Canon throughout the company, and I think that... With the injury of Quack and him stepping up, this probably was an avenue for him further. Uh, I, I gave this one the Gentleman's 3. I thought this was perfectly decent. And, you know, especially given what all happened to make this match change happen, I felt like it was exactly what it should be. Gentleman's
3: yeah. 3 from me as well. Same. I want Gentleman's 3 as well.
1: Somehow, I, I, I usually either talk to Case a lot about these shows ahead of time or not. And somehow we're basically on the same thought process, all three of us, and that's a little scary <laughs> to me. <laughs> feels good feels good
2: to uh have my thoughts validated <laughs> this is a big confidence boost for me this podcast <laughs> accurate star raiders exactly
1: we are accurate star starters on the show and i'll be interested to hear what you all have to say about this one this is another match where you know it was there in my opinion it was kuma versus ricochet ricochet defeated granakuma in seven minutes and 23 seconds the shortest match on the main sh- show with the double moonsault and You know, this, after the performance that Ricochet had the night before, especially going against Speed Muscle, this was a lot more of, like, the raw Ricochet that you could tell, like, he had a lot of stuff to improve upon.
2: Yes. So, we talked in the last episode, the night before, Ricochet teams with Shima, they wrestle Speed Muscle, I think it's one of the best matches in the promotion's history, and Ricochet is made as a star and the way it's presented. That is the beginning of what would later become a King of Gate winner, an Open the Dream Gate winner, a Battle of Los Angeles winner, an NXT superstar, and a main and main roster fodder, but that's not his fault. <laughs> the thing with this match is that... It went seven minutes and it sounds weird to say that this should have gone shorter, especially given that Akuma's initial positioning on the card was, yes, he was going to end up losing to Jigsaw, but he and Jigsaw were going to have what I would think to be a pretty heated match. I mean, it was a few that had been going for over a year at that point. So I don't want to say that Akuma should have just been squashed and that he should have been tossed aside But I didn't like seeing Ricochet struggle with Akuma to this extent, given that we had just watched the prior show where Ricochet comes away looking like a million bucks. I kind of wish this was a three or four minute, you know, Akuma cuts him off once and then Ricochet just hits move after move and is done with him. Fine for what it was, not a match I'll go back on at any point. I went two and a quarter with this.
3: Yeah, it felt really sloppy to me. Like this was definitely Ricochet's putting together the pieces, but he's still pretty raw at this point. And yeah, it just it didn't do much for me. The the finish was awesome because he just crushed Akuma,
1: just landed <laughs> right on his ribs. Like, like that was it heavy. Like it hurt so bad. I'd imagine like that is a move that you really are hoping that someone's going to roll kind of off you when you do this no ricochet just went however much he waited this time straight down on on uh on akuma's stomach and that just had to suck and i have to imagine that like was this the, your first time seeing ricochet live kelly yes how was seeing like the double moon salt live like i have to imagine like the first time i saw it live I was like this breaks physics this makes no yeah, sense like it doesn't make any sense <laughs> it's like how 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 does that work it's it's just one of those things that like to this day, like even like he, like one spot out before we move on in this match, I thought was ridiculous was with how cramped everything was on this show. Rick Say decided to do a Sasuke special on this. Yeah. And this match, <laughs> insane person. Like, like especially like 2009 before or 2010 before he like wisens up and was like, I'm going to kill myself and keep on doing this. Doing this <laughs> is insane to me.
3: Yeah. And before I move on from this match, I do have to shout out uh, my friend Peter. You see him in the crowd. He's the guy who, when Ricochet is going around giving high fives, he pulls his hand away from him. Oh. <laughs> so, a uh, man
2: ahead of his time. Yeah. He saw so. what
3: was coming. it said, I don't want to be a part of this. So <laughs> shout out to Peter. Uh, we went to high school together, and I actually saw him today at work. God. <laughs> <laughs> <Good.
1: laughs> hey, the, especially considering, like, Ricochet, like, the look on his face when his hand got pulled back was something. <laughs>
3: He, he was. it looked like he was legitimately hurt
1: by it. <laughs> it I mean Ricochet was like a teenager at that point that had to be like a little bit like low self moment of hey <laughs> you're supposed to like me why don't you like me but yeah I, I went two and a half on this match just mainly because I thought what they tried to do and the circumstances even though with how messy it was I thought it was kind of remarkable the fact that maybe it was a two and a half stars just for that insane Sasuke special where they immediately like fell into like the chasm between the stage and the ring. I was like, that could have been terrible. So yeah, yeah, that was the craziest part of it was how it's like they really could have got messed up on that. It's nuts. Absolutely. There's
3: a there's a spot with the stage uh, at the show the next year where uh, Tozawa accidentally pushes a fan off of the
1: stage <laughs> <laughs> and it almost looked like he killed that guy. I mean. That's the Zawa. That makes sense that he would be the kind of person to accidentally do that.
3: Yeah. Yeah, I went uh, two and three quarters on it. Purely, I added the extra quarter star just because of Ricochet crushing Akuma at the end. (sighs) Just brutal. Yeah. (laughs)
1: might Might be to this day the heaviest double moonsault he ever does. But that led to... We had other backstage promo as Jimmy Jacobs was talking. They made sure that we know now that this one was happening earlier today. Jimmy talked about how he talks about moxley i don't think this was like his strongest promo he talked about i didn't take very many mo- notes on it because it kind of was a rote promo but he made a line about he's okay with having scars all over his body because you can't cause scars on a dead body and i was like okay jimmy that's a little dark okay <laughs> but yeah no i don't think this was jimmy jacobs best promo at least here. i would agree with that yeah it was you know, it was there but jacobs has had
2: better and will have better in the promotion uh as we
1: go forward
3: It seemed like uh, the promo from a guy who was prepared to run out of the venue at any moment. (laughs) I I wouldn't be surprised if they're like, you know, we got to keep an eye out for this, but uh, cut this promo real fast.
1: (laughs) And then suddenly he sprints down down the street, never to be Uh seen until the show. I buy it. I buy it. So after that, we had a promo as Moxley came down to the ring, basically riffing on the uh, you're going to get your head kicked in chant. And then he did probably the one thing that i would say that the most of moxley in 2020 really holds up uh he 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 has the same value before and like he does this like kind of side effect but he like slaps her around and just like oh moxley come on man this is even for 2010 like with the w- weird energy that he was saying like that i think that once Delaney called him like weird animal chemistry he has or like charisma he has that i thought that was kind of awkward there yeah it's so it, he's so gross like he's just <laughs> such a disgusting dirtbag it's just something that like i know that now you can't really turn the clock back with him nowadays but i'd be real interested if he like just comes out like in whatever hoodie he like drove in the ring with like takes off his pants has his tights on puts out a cigarette and has a match like i would completely buy that as something that john moxley would do and I'm, yeah. this point we don't have that on national tv because at least i feel like that'd be very interesting
2: I'm disappointed we don't have this match on national TV. And yeah. to think at one point it was, very, well, it was very possible twice as these guys spent what seven years in the same company together. But then, you know, we've talked a lot about Danielson and how, you know, he had a chance to jump ship or to change wrestling and didn't. And I've mentioned on the show that, you know, even the the pimped WWE Daniel Bryan stuff, I just don't enjoy as much as other people do, just because I don't think, I don't think he works great in that environment. I think it often handicaps him and seeing this match, which this is the last match that he worked for Gabe. If you're a completist, uh, it should be noted that he ended up working an N E W show the weekend after this, and he wrestled Shelton Benjamin on that show. And that was his final independent date. Um, But this, this match with Moxley is precisely why I don't enjoy his WWE stuff as much because there is no way, there is no possible scenario in which he can work a match as violent as this one in that company. And you know Chuck Taylor's a guy that we mentioned a few shows ago. Chuck Taylor is like a sneaky good plunder brawler. Like Chuck Taylor works really well with weapons and succeeds in that environment. Daniel Bryan Brian Danielson, rather, does not need weapons to portray danger and violence in the way he does. And when he said this match was going to be a fight, it turned out to be just that. And this is a match that I have seen before. I've seen it. You know, I I had the DVD, so I probably watched the show three, four times because, you know, when I had DVDs, I was just constantly consuming them. I had not seen this match in years. I was blown away at just how good it was because of the physicality and the intensity. And the fact that it didn't overstay its welcome. It was a 14-minute match. And I just, I, it's a shame that this is the end of Brian Danielson
3: because it's a wrestler that I sorely miss. Yeah, this match is fantastic. its I still rank it as one of my favorite matches I've ever seen live. It's so good. And it, it's a, just knowing it's one of Danielson's last matches before he goes off to WWE land was just amazing. And it's like they it's such a brawl like you wouldn't expect that out of Daniel Bri- or Brian Danielson's final indie match. You'd think, OK, it'll be kind of like, I don't know, maybe like a technical masterpiece or something. It, it's just a brutal, bloody brawl. Like, I love it so much.
1: It it's something where watching this match, it, it struck me like right in like the first three minutes of the match, uh I don't think we we said it was fourteen minutes fifty six seconds, Danielson won with little Locke, the little bell lock, but like the first two or three minutes of it, we got this great all time house of fire where he just comes out, immediately like takes it to him, puts him in the elbows, locks on the cow mutilation very early, and it just made me think Brian Danielson might be one of the all time other than being like an all time great wrestler. He might be one of the, one of like the top five like all time House of Fire wrestlers. That when Brian Danielson like is pissed off and is like revving up or like he's just trying to like compose himself, psych himself up. You know you're going to get something incredible here. It's like the first like three or four minutes, like basically leading up to him getting busted open, which that's wild for him getting himself busted open. Get considering what all was going on in WWE and they were going. This is when they started their trend into safety. The fact that in his last like high profile indie match he got himself busted open hard and looked like it was like pretty rough on like a turnbuckle and it just was something remarkable like this whole entire thing and it's definitely something where they would later because i was looking this up while you were talking they had a grand total of 89 matches in wwe and other than maybe the initial shield versus team hell no stuff nothing really kind of peaks to this level of this match and it's 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 really remarkable that they had this match and then less than two years later they would start having more matches against each other again and nothing like they would not have like i'm looking at these singles matches that they had i don't remember a single one of them and they're all just and a lot of them may tape and a lot of them made tv but this is a match i'm like oh yeah this was an outright fight and even though it was not a no DQ match it felt different than everything else and that was remarkable
2: Yeah, that is that is shocking to me, because other than the shield debut, which is the shield against Brian Kane and Ryback, which I actually think is one of the best matches in WWE history. It is not that top tier. It is not an edge orden of greatest matches ever, obviously, (laughs) but it's not. It's it's a second tier like of greatness for me. But I think that is one of the most effective and Shockingly, one of the most violent matches WWE has ever had. There's a lot of spots in that match that feel uh, like they have more weight than a broken barrier spear or an ace crusher off of the ladder. Like they do some stuff there where it's like, oh man, that that could have gone really, really wrong. Other than that, and granted, I mean, I there's you know probably stuff towards the end of ambrose's run there of mox's run there that i wasn't seeing but i was watching wwe weekly you know 2012 through maybe well i through 2015 because that's a lot of kevin Owens stuff and i saw all of that in the john cena u.s open challenge so i'm clearly watching the product as these matches are happening and the fact that only one sticks with me and that's their debut that is a failure in execution on behalf of wwe that is a shame that they wrestled so much and produced so little
3: yeah, I would have wagered that there was that, ladder ma- or that TLC match, and then maybe I think there was one follow-up match, but I would have wagered that was it because I have no recollection of anything
1: else. So to be fair, that was 89 matches that also include tag matches. They had five matches that were just the two of them on TV, and I can't re- remember what? anything with them. Yeah, and then another four matches on house shows when uh, Ambrose was United States champion. That's all they had, like, singles match-wise during their entire time there. But still, 89 matches and 9 singles matches, and nothing is as good as this.
3: That's insane. And also, I w- anyone listening to this, if you haven't seen that TLC match in a while, or maybe never saw it, go back and watch it. It's, like Case was saying, it's shockingly great. I mean, you get, you get Moxley or Ambrose at the time just whipping chairs at
1: Ryback. It's insane. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> but yeah, it's like th- and this is just so good. And what you were saying about the House of Fire with Brian, it reminded me a lot of his matches with uh, Morishima. Mm-hmm. Where it's just like, all right, cool. I'm going to come out here and we're going to beat the shit out of each other. <laughs> Let's just go for it.
1: And it's something that for someone like Moxley, who still you could tell he he later kind of like fully gets up here, but he can brawl and like doing that here was such a smart move, you know, like everything in this match was just a real subversion of expectations and made this like for them building this up to be a fight, this felt out and out like a huge fight. And I loved it for that. Yeah.
3: And while Brian won,
1: it felt like a passing of the torch. Oh yeah. It, It definitely was like, you could tell like the former Gabe guy with the Kurt Gabe guy, like this felt like, okay, Moxley, was someone that could have been the guy in Dragon Gate USA coming from, off of this match? Yeah. So I went four and a quarter on this match, which might be a little low. What? Well, what? Well, Mike,
2: you... I went I went four and a quarter as well. We are we did not talk <laughs> about this show ahead of time, but we are. I think I went a quarter star um, higher than you on the opener, and other than that, we are right in line.
1: I
3: am four and a half on this one. Well,
1: I think that's fair. I think that's fair, and I think seeing this live also, like I had to imagine like other than the main event, like I would have loved to see this match live just because of how, like I've noticed with something with Moxley that he gets terror over. Like oh, that, yeah. like terror and just randomness. Like I know like the, like the whole like lunatic fringe thing, like you get like that certain thing there that like watching him live, they don't give anyone else. And I would have loved to like been in, in, in Wisconsin for this match.
3: Yeah. Like it, he, he feels like that scary dirt bag. Like, like that's just <laughs> who he is. That's not a character. That's, that's really him. It, it not so as much as New Jack, but it's on,
1: it's on the same track. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean that that different kind of lunatic, but I I could see that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, one, one more less uh, weird cage match note before m- move on. So they've had two, they've had two matches on pay per view. Neither of them were singles matches. One of them was the Royal Rumble. One of them was the ladder match at WrestleMania thirty one. How can't these guy? How weren't I know, like, things were different, and, like, positioning-wise, you only have, like, two pay-per-view matches between these guys? That's insane. So, Wasted opportunities. Yep. I mean, story of a lot of people in WWE in recent time. I have to—I'm I, I, sorry I do this a lot. Uh, I'm—okay, no, they had that TLC match, so three matches. My apologies. I don't want people to tweet at me ever, so <laughs> wanted to make sure for that not to happen. So—
3: But, you know, WWE's treatment of, you know, Brian and Moxley is very much like the promo that followed after this, where Jimmy Jacobs tries to sit in a chair and it just collapses on him.
1: (laughs) That was so (laughs) wild. So Danielson extends his hand, but then Akuma comes out and Moxley attacks him. Jimmy Jacobs comes out to save the chair. Brian Danielson takes the mic. Jimmy breaks his chair, which for someone like Jimmy Jacobs to break a chair... What kind of cherry they have there? <laughs> and then they did like the full like passing the torch promo there. And they were joking about how Jimmy Jacobs, of course, as you all have listened, will know he was very involved in setting up the ring. Uh, Brian Danielson sat this one out.
2: <laughs> and good for Brian. Yeah, he was U.S. champion at the time. He does not need to be setting up a Dragon
1: U.S.A. ring. Did he have the belt with him there, Kelly? Or do you remember if he did? I don't remember seeing the belt. I just, uh, you know, with how they are recently, I've been surprised that, I mean, you're on the indies, man. You could charge more for your last photograph. I know Danielson's not necessarily the kind of guy who's all like money, like economy forward. But if I was in a situation, I'd be like, if you want to photograph the belt, that costs double. (laughs) So
3: that will get, and we'll get to like, I'll talk about this near the end, but he was doing uh, taking pictures afterwards. He wasn't charging anything.
1: I mean, that, that that is such a Brian Danielson thing, you yeah. know. In a lot of ways, that that I mean, whenever I think about his decisions and his career path, it makes me really sad because a lot of things with Brian Danielson, he does. I'm like, hell yeah, you're the guy there, but yeah. So main event time, we had the Dragon Gate six man tag came to Milwaukee as Kamikaze USA defeated World One. The Kamikaze USA team was Akira Tozawa, Shingo Takagi, and Yamato versus. The World 1 team of BB Hulk and Masato Yoshino and, Doi, and Naruki Doi. The most overman in Milwaukee, Naruki Doi. As we had the big six for the first time on American soil have a match that all these people would stick around as soon as that so would come back and be the, the focal point of this generation here. Interestingly enough, and in a very smart booking move given what's happening on future shows shingo takagi got the win so Tazawa, the young guy the, the person who's like the bottom ranked person did not take the fall in this match as he penned the open the freedom gate champion bb hulk in the stage ring and what i thought was a, a truly special match and a match that because of like this was a show that was only for dvd i think this match is worth going out of your way to see if you're someone who really loves that six-man style i thought this was incredible
3: yeah, Kelly, this, go is, ahead. this is a special match. Like, it's, I mean, you get to the end of the match, and I don't know, for the last two, like, three or so minutes, everyone's on their feet the entire time. It's just, this was, you could tell these guys wanted to go out and make sure we got a great show, and it was amazing. Like, And the pace these guys worked at, in what was a pretty hot room, like, you could see, like, B.B. Hulk especially was pouring sweat in this match. And it's just nuts. Like, the the closing stretch is incredible. I love this match. To this day, one of the best matches I've ever been in person
1: for.
2: I remember really, really liking this match the first time I saw it. And the first time I, I would have seen this match would have been very early into my Dragon Gate and Dragon Gate USA watching. So I wasn't sure how it was going to hold up. But knowing that it was the big six in this match, this generation of Gate now being represented on American soil. And to my knowledge, and I could be forgetting a match here or there, but this match happened, I know for sure, on the March 3rd, 2010 Cork and Hall show in Japan. And it featured uh, this incarnation of teams with the world one Hulk, Yoshino, Doyen, the Kamikaze, Tozawa, Shingo, Yamato. And then I know the match happened again, uh, in 2013, it would have been September 29, 2013, when it was Mad Blanky of Hulk, Doy and Yamato versus Tozawa, Yoshino, and Shingo. But, I mean, this is a, a match that was big on paper, that felt big in the arena, and there's not necessarily one guy that I think stole the show. Because part of what makes the Dragon Gate 6 man in particular so special is almost a sense of unity that everybody is bringing the same thing to the table. And while Tozawa at this point in his career was clearly positioned as the weakest guy of the six people in this match, you have to remember that Tozawa is only a few weeks removed from his career changing match against Chris hero at PWG's battle of Los Angeles. And the confidence that Tozawa has in this match compared to what we saw at the one year anniversary show compared to what we saw at the Canada double shot. Like this is an entirely different Akira Tozawa who was working as someone who has figured out his craft and is on a path to greatness. And then you put him in the ring with five competitors, some of whom you could argue this is their peak, whether it be BB Hulk, or if you're, Really, against the work that Yamato has done in more recent years, you know, there's an argument to be made that this is peak Yamato as well. I think Doi Yoshino and Shingo got better as time went along. This is just a phenomenal match. Like Kelly mentioned the pace they work at, how intense all of this all of this is. There's a moment where Yamato snaps and he hits a spear on, I believe, Hulk, that is scary and I mean, he flies and lunges at this guy, and it is a Goldberg-quality spear, and it is coming from Yamato, of all people. The finishing stretch is brilliant. The layout is brilliant. I will give my star rating now. I think this is one of the best matches we have seen up to this point in the promotion. We are over a year into GGUSA's existence. I think this is better A better match, not as important of a match, but a better match than the Speed Muscle versus Shima and Ricochet tag from the night before. I think this is better than the Mercury Rising Six Man from WrestleMania weekend. I think this is a four and three quarter star match. It is other than maybe the Speed Muscle versus and Dragon Kid tag from the November 2009 show. And Danielson versus Shingo from the one-year anniversary. This might be the third-best match in company history up to this point.
1: Yeah, case again. I was four and three quarters.
2: Yeah, man. same, Sam
1: it, It's just something like for this match, and I think case really hit it on the head. Tozawa here. This is at least in DGUSA where he has he kicks that gear that for like for the for the remainder of the tour the time of DG USA because he'd be the one that even when he went back to Japan he was listed basically on every single like talent announcement that they would have Akira Tozawa he would become like the person that I mean PWG really was the company that made Akira Tozawa but he would be putting out such high quality work and I mean he has like the little things that he's gonna like eventually get out like he does do the airplane the apron Kara Tozawa, which, case I know you are not a fan of whatsoever, but... I thought it looked good in this match,
2: though. I thought it was a good spot. Yeah. Uh,
1: the Genki was probably, like, the biggest, like, near-fall Ganky I think I've ever seen in his career. That's a move he drops. And it's just, like, him, like, stepping onto the stage. And this would have been... I think this DVD might have come out before that Bola did, even though people were already talking online about Akira Tazawa breaking out at Bola. And it just was, like, such a remarkable thing that he was able to kind of like get in here my favorite spot of him in this match though was when they had i think it was hulk up for a doomsday device he ducks down and akira tozawa goes flying and like eats it right in the middle of the ring i'm like that's a special kind of person to decide (laughs) we're not gonna make this work but i'm just gonna like fully like embrace it and just eat shit on this but remarkable match uh kelly i do have one big question ask you how yeah. did Milwaukee become Naruki Doi country? How is how is he as mayor of Milwaukee? Because I don't
3: know. Like, everyone just went with it. I've never been in a crowd before that was just like, yes, this is the chant we do. And they just went with it instantly. Like, I,
1: I have no idea. But yeah, Milwaukee just loves Doi. It, and it's something that with Naruki Doi, he started feeding off it even the match oh, itself. Yeah. It's <laughs> remarkable. But yeah, I don't. This is probably like one of the, like, the shows that I think it falls between the cracks But I don't think you can miss out On this this trios match And I don't think anyone should miss out On the Moxley-Danielson match before this I think this is one of those special Unique matches that I'll be Real interested in case when we get to the end of the series How this holds up because right now I'm with you it's the top three match in the promotions history And I think that Having this in a Small venue like the Miramar Theater Where it really looked like like you mentioned, how hot it was, Kelly. It looked like everyone was on top of each other in this arena, and they were just having a thirty-minute, just incredible trio's match. It's just was something special, and it's something that, if you have the WWN live network or Club WN, it's a dumb name, dumb name. <laughs> I say this every time because I always get tripped up on it. You have to go out and see this. If if they're looking to put a matchup on YouTube for people to watch, this is a match to put up on YouTube. It's just such a special match, and. Having Shingo Takagi pin the Freedom Gate champion leading into his match, I think it was in Fall River coming up, was such a smart move and an inversion of expectations because you think, oh yeah, Hulk's going to pin Tozawa or Yoshino's going to pin Tozawa. And they completely inverted that. And I thought it was incredibly, I thought it was an incredibly inventive way of doing it. And I think that's something that Gabe Spolsky really had his idea on where he was going to go with the Freedom Gate title with that. So I love this match.
3: Yeah, it's it's so good, and like Shingo has been in two of the three greatest matches I've ever been in in person for with this, and then him versus Osprey at the best of the Super Juniors finals.
2: That was a flex. I did not know you were in person for that. <laughs> I was. Now yeah, very, I'm now very jealous. It was
3: so cool.
2: I imagine so. I was watching it on a couch in Central Indiana. It's not
3: quite as cool, <laughs> but still a good memory. <laughs> Yeah, this is definitely a show that, like, it's amazing how hard these guys worked, considering it's just a, what a, What was it, 200-some people? 200 venue? on the dot. Yeah, 200 people in Milwaukee. Like, that's not a big venue, and that's not, like, a big crowd, but these guys worked it like it was, like, they were main eventing the Tokyo Dome, you know? It was nuts. It's a
2: touring match that was put on not like an all-star game, but more like the finals of a playoff series. I mean, it really had that intensity to it. And it is constantly just the best thing about the touring Dragon Gate six man tag and whatever incarnation it's in, whether it's blood generation versus do fixer muscle outlaws versus typhoon. We have a new generation here on world one versus kamikaze. They just bring it. And and I don't know if it's because the way the first one, the blood generation do fixer match, if that was so well received that it just means something to the Japanese guys now, or what I think it is, is it just speaks to their work ethic. I mean, these are guys that at least televised shows, you know, mind you, the house shows are a different story in Japan, <laughs> but these guys do not take television shows off. I mean, it is a, just a, a remarkable effort and work ethic and just the way they continue to push themselves. I, I, I'm doing a lot of existential thinking right now, obviously, (laughs) um, but something that I have just come to really love about Dragon Gate is their sense of ensemble and their sense of community. And the fact that when things are firing on all cylinders for the promotion, it seems like everybody is in the fight together. And in a weird way, this world one kamikaze match represented everything that I like about the company on top of everything. You know, the fact that they built a ring together before the show started. I mean, it is top to bottom, in and out of the ring. It is the great side of Dragon Gate being represented on this
1: show. And on top of all of that, just because I, I just had the thought peek in my head, because me being the Tozawa super fan, I knew he was like 25 when he had this match. He's the youngest person in this match. The oldest person in this match was 30. And Jeez. it's just something that, like, when you like think about this, like, naruki Doi and uh and uh, uh masato yoshina would have been about 10 years 10 years pro doi a little bit less so but they have been around for that long actually no he did debut in 20, in 2000 i don't know why i thought he was a little later but then like the rest of these guys i mean tozawa five year pro uh hulk and shingo six year pro and they're having these matches and i think the ensemble thing and it's something that even to this day like i, I i've grown to like Whenever people like ask like about stuff about Dragon Gate, it's like it's like a co op in a lot of ways. That it's just this traveling ensemble where they like they put together the rings at, at every show. So it's like very much so like that. It's almost like this was a true Dragon Gate experience that they had to put together the ring and they went out here and had a what should have been, and I know it's not the case, should have been a match of the year contender in 2010.
3: Yeah, I completely definitely. agree.
1: Kelly, you didn't give uh, you didn't give us your star rating where you get four oh, and three quarters. Uh,
3: yeah, four and three quarters.
1: All right. So somehow, I, I think there was only like two matches where we were off by a combined like half star. So yeah, that...
3: we were never more than like a quarter star away from each other.
1: <laughs> that is wild. That is wild. So and and one last note, and this goes into the next episode. This is the last time they would be able to do this match in this configuration, because when we start on the next episode talking about the next double shot and all this. The big change is about to hit Dragon Gate really quickly. As you know, uh, just as a tease, Deep Drunkers is about to die. So that's going to change the whole entire landscape, especially. And it'll be a landscape change that has its reaches into DG USA as well. So,
2: yes, just briefly to run down uh, the card for the next episode, we will be talking about Dragon Gate USA's Bushido Code of the Warrior on October 29, 2010 on a show that features a four-way freestyle between Eric Cannon, Chuck Taylor, Jar- Johnny Gargano, and Ricochet, a singles bound between Homicide and Rich Swan. Masato Yoshino will face the debuting Austin Aries. There'll be an I quit match between Jimmy Jacobs and John Moxley, a tag team cluster between Brody Lee and Aki Bono versus the Osirian portal, a tag match between Akira Tozawa and Yamato versus Shima and Genki Horiguchi. And then the main event, Dragon Gate's most heated rivalry of all time, at least in the ring, we are talking BB Hulk versus Shingo for the open, the Freedom Gate title.
1: I, I always forget that Akibono did DG USA and that makes me a little... <laughs> that, that, that's a wild thing. And it, it's important that Naruki Doi got like the go-home thing where he got everyone to chant Naruki Doi because he would be off this next weekend's show for a good reason because things are changing in Dragon Gate and we'll get into that on the next episode. So for a show that, you know, as we all know, there is no B-shows in Dragon Gate USA. This would have been like considered a B-show. I think other than... Oh, man, I think I like this show more than Untouchable. I think I, this was the best show of that weekend.
2: I I liked Chicago more. I thought the undercard of this show was just very okay. Um, because Akuma, Ricochet, and Cannon, Dragon Kid, while they were fine, didn't do a ton for me. I think Chicago was a little bit more consistent but, I mean, the last two matches on this show, for historical reasons as well as just entertainment, they're essential viewing if you have not seen them.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. So, Kelly, do you have any more sh- thoughts on the show before we take this in for a landing?
3: Uh, well, I wanted to say, so after the show ended, the World 1 team was kind of just wandering around the venue. And my mom just walked right up to Naruki Narukiduo and, like, poked him on the back. And, his, and so we thanked him for the great match. And then I don't know where we got a Sharpie. I think he may have just been carrying it around. <laughs> and so he signed my ticket. So that was super cool. Oh. And then we were talking because uh, in Danielson's promo, he said, "Yo, yeah, I'm doing a signing. So I, I must have said something to my parents was like, oh, I wonder where that is. And a woman who worked at the venue overheard us is like, oh, you want to go to the the signing with that guy? Here, let me take you. And she takes us this weird way around the venue. And like the entire time we're walking, I'm thinking this doesn't seem right. So where we come out of, we're right next to the table. Like she may have taken us backstage, essentially. So we're like right next to the autograph table. And in the time we were gone or in the time we were walking, just this huge line had started. And she's just like, oh, no, I'm so sorry. (laughs) danielson looks danielson looks at me and waves us over like he somehow knew exactly what had happened and has me cut in line and i took a quick picture with him and got my ticket signed and so that gives me my coolest wrestling artifact which is a dragon gate usa ticket signed by brian danielson and naruki doi
1: that, that's outstanding that rules uh who was the person on the ticket this time because i know that they always had like photos of everyone on it
3: i think it's mike quackenbush okay
1: Ugh, sorry
3: because <laughs> I, I couldn't remember if it's quackenbush or eric, uh, eric Cannon, because Cannon's the next show i
1: believe okay but, well i mean that's midwest thing for Cannon. quackenbush yeah. being on it you know i mean they just got the big win at the uh fir- first year anniversary i guess the uh Chakara Sekigun got the honor of being put on those tickets, but that that rules. I I can just imagine Naruki Doi is like, all right, this is Naruki Doi country. I'm the mayor yeah. of Milwaukee. I'm walking <laughs> around with a sharpie and signing everything.
3: <laughs> Pretty much. He was so sweet too. He's such a nice guy.
1: You, you know, I, the, 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 I've heard stories about how much Naruki Doi loves wrestling in america it would make total sense given like the first run of shows. considering how over he was in like places like milwaukee are like nah we're adopting you you're now our new native son so <laughs> no wonder he was he loves america so much when he goes and wrestles in milwaukee okay so i think that's gonna wrap us up for this episode kelly thank you so much for joining us do you have anything you would like to plug before we end the episode oh well thank you for having me um yeah you can follow me on twitter at comic
3: Geek kelly with only one k uh you can listen to me every tuesday night on the panels on pages podcast we record or live on youtube so we start at nine central time and if you don't feel like listening live it'll be there in the archives and i i, I sometimes now still do the WWE pay-per-view reviews at voices of wrestling only only when we need the big guns do I step up these days. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I, I mean, you, you kind of have become like the, uh, you were like the, the main eventer of the WWE yeah. pay-per-views. But because you have the pop, you had. I'm going to hate myself if I ask you, you, you have the Pop-Tart rating. What Pop-Tart would you give the show?
3: Ooh, I would go with the Hot Fudge Sundae. Mm,
1: oh, solid. Well, love that one. Solid. Yeah. you know i randomly got a box of pop-tarts i know that there's a lot of controversy among voices of wrestling about if pop-tarts are good or not i like a pop-tart occasionally it was like a random uh like assortment box of them and it had the hot fudge sundae and usually i would not get that i had that and i was like you know what i actually like this more than the s'mores pop-tart which is my favorite so s'mores
3: is yeah, s'mores is like old faithful pretty much
1: yeah all right well thank you again uh kelly uh case okay, so is there anything you want to plug before we get out of here
2: yeah, um, as always, I'm on Twitter at underscore in your case, and Mike and I both tweet from the open the voice gate account at open voice gate. Um, I'll take just a second because we're living in whatever the fuck we're living in. Um stopchicago dot org is the website for the South Side Together organizing for power organization that has been I guess one of the primary things to receive donations from me over the past few days, um, they do a lot of great work with housing and mental health reform and education on the South side of Chicago. And they desperately need all the help uh, that you can give. Um, So just keep that in mind as you kind of go about your next few days. Um, Any help is appreciated. Uh, Either with that organization or just uh, with, I guess, basic humanity at this point, Um, I hope that this podcast offered some sort of distraction uh, from what has been going on. So StopChicago.org is my main plug today because I'm sure most of you follow me on Twitter anyways and and who gives a shit about that. So once again, it's StopChicago.org if you'd like to help make a difference on the south side of Chicago.
1: Yeah, I'll make sure to include that in the show notes. I'm at Fujihea. I haven't mentioned it in a long time, and I feel awkward. I have a match listing that people have asked me about that I update for 2020. I'll mention it on the weekly show as well. But that's going to do it here. So thank you again, Kelly, for joining us this week. Oh, thank you, guys. And for Case, I'm Mike, and we'll catch you next time on Rewind Rewatch when we go to Falls River, uh, Massachusetts, for the Bushido Way of the Warrior card. Take care, everyone.